Kansas' second district congressional race pits Democrat Michelle De La Isla against Republican nominee Jake LaTurner. De La Isla, the Topeka mayor, joins the Kansas Reflector podcast to dip into her basket of ideas on health care and education, Black Lives Matter and immigration, as well as the economy and COVID-19. Well, welcome, Mayor. Welcome to the Kansas Reflector podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So I, I have to ask the first question is, what were you thinking when you decided to run for Congress in the 2nd District? Why are you doing this? I was going to make a funny first, but I'll be serious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can crack a joke. I mean, oh, politicians know, I was, are supposed to have a sense of humor. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself a politician. I consider myself a public servant, um, which is why I'm human. I was going to say temporary lapse of judgment. <laughs> <laughs> but no, on a serious note, I, as you know, I love my community here in Topeka and have been working really hard. However, a lot of the issues that people are asking for support for are not things in my realm. When you talk to people about their biggest needs, they're talking about things like their health care. People are talking and very concerned with regards to how are we going to work on the economy, which we do at the local level, but still um, talking about food issues. So much so that in the city of Topeka, as you know, we've been talking about bioagro expansion and doing innovation in these realms. So when you start looking at all of those things, and I started reaching out throughout the district, I started learning that a lot of those issues are issues that I am passionate about, and not only passionate about, but also have a firsthand understanding of some of them. And after a lot of praying, a lot of thinking about it and talking to my kids over the kitchen table where we make all our decisions, um, we agreed that it was time for me to do this. Hmm. Okay. Let's drill down a little bit into some of the issues that you do care about. Let's start with health care. What are you talking about there? What are you advocating for? So first and foremost, I think that Medicaid expansion is the number one thing in the mind of Kansans right now. We were so close to accomplishing that. And although it is not a congressional issue, I think it's important to note that A, as a candidate and as a human, I support it. I think that it's unfair that in the richest country in the world, we have over 150,000 Kansans that don't have either access or are underinsured. So my job in Congress is going to be to ensure that the Affordable Health Care Act, which is right now now in danger because there's three lawsuits Mm -hmm. after it Mm -hmm. is still there a lot of people don't understand that the ACA is nothing but condition pre-existing condition protection Um, and I think that we have to start talking about that in the basic terms if that is removed it automatically opens it up for insurances not to allow for individuals to have adequate health care without being charged ridiculous amounts of money Um, and then in addition to that my role is going to be to ensure that once I'm there the dollars that are coming to the state that God willing Kansas soon will have Medicaid expansion are still available to those states so that we can ensure more people in our communities I think over the last half a dozen years the number might be $4 billion now that presumptively We've could, lost. Have, could yeah. have come into the Kansas yep. health care system through the ACA, uh, through Medicaid expansion, and it has not. So that, that, that kind of money That's would of seem money. useful to rural hospitals, urban hospitals. Four have closed in District 2. Mm-hmm. Four hospitals. Mm-hmm. And when I visited with all of the hospitals that I visited with, they all say the same thing. Many of them could have been taken care of had we had expansion. 
I think another argument that's made that it's difficult to have a healthy economy if people are going to work sick because they don't Absolutely. have adequate health care. Absolutely. And it's not just that. Here, here's the deal that people don't think about. Having good health care means that you are taking care of issues before they become something grave. One of the things that impacts us the most is things like diabetes, like heart conditions, things that are all chronic, that had they been taken care of, you don't have the loss of employment, you don't have people getting sick on a regular basis, mm-hmm. you don't have the chronic things and the additional expenses to the healthcare system because you're having to deal with crises over and over and people having to use the emergency room as their PCP because they don't have one. You mentioned the economy too. What are you seeking there? You know, I think that it's very important right now in the time that we're in to ensure that our farmers are taken care of. I think it's a shame that right now our farmers are getting money so that they don't sell what they have. Their crops are there. I've heard of farmers that still have crops since 2018 that they're not able to move. Um, And I think that just as basic business savvy, if we were going to, as a country, enter into negotiations and start talking about how we were going to deal with China, the best thing that we could have been doing is taking a look at who could have been potential allies, that we could have not stopped the economy for Kansas and so many other states in our country that have farming as the backbone of their economy and figure out how we were going to keep having those exports happening without impacting our farmers. Right now, our farmers are struggling. In addition to that, COVID has hit us. And now we are seeing challenges that we've all known all too well with the digital divide. Our rural communities don't have good access to broadband. In our local communities, in the urban core, we have kids that need to have broadband that don't have broadband. And that is critical to our economy. If we want to start talking about how we're going to grow businesses, we have to have that infrastructure. Our small businesses are suffering. The programs that were offered by the federal government initially in the first round disappeared quickly. And who took them? The major corporations. We need to make sure that we support the small businesses that are the backbone of our economy as well. And uh, and also make sure that we figure out a way on how to in a balanced way, support also the families that right now don't have access to funding um, and and that are losing their, I mean, people talk about, well, if you support a family, what are you doing? You're supporting that family. No, you're supporting the landlord that has that. You're supporting the utility that is being missed and you're supporting those children that are living in that family. I think uh, members of uh, candidates for Congress and members have to think about public education as well. Do you have uh, some ideas on that front? Very strong opinions. I think that this whole notion of talking about creating vouchers and figuring out ways that we could work at public schools is something that very much concerns me. We have amazing public school systems. Education is our great equalizer. We need to start figuring out ways of fortifying our educational system. I'll give you an example. Right now, my district here, 501, is the biggest district in the whole county. Mm-hmm. I'm just talking about this one in Topeka currently. Mm-hmm. They are the ones that receive the least amount of dollars because they are in a, in an area, they have to fight for the dollars more because they are not in areas that have so much more money because of where they're at. The way that the formulas are divided, schools that are placed in, in, in locations that are generating more, uh, for more dollars for their mill levy are getting a little bit more. So we have to figure out a way that we start balancing that so that the schools are starting to get funding based on the need. Because if if we know that there is a school district that has kids that are gonna have more resources needed in order for them to succeed, why are we not investing in that? Why are we not making more investment in public school early childhood education? Mm -hmm. 
It's the great equalizer. And then guess what? We're not talking about those things, but then we're concerned when we're seeing crime rates when we know that when a child is not reading on or at grade level at third grade, there is a higher incidence that they're going to veer away from education and maybe not have the best life choices. Right. No, education, uh, the lack of creates social problems that percolate for years. Mm-hmm. You spoke about money. I'm thinking uh, you have some experience now with uh, dark money, money that's uh, unattributed to a donor and can be funneled to campaigns and used for advertising purposes. Uh, You know, Republicans and Democrats do it both, but there's just a ton of money in politics. And sometimes candidates find out that their individual message, their personal message is is overwhelmed by those external forces. And I didn't know if you had experienced any of that. You know, we haven't, not yet. Um, I'm not saying that it may not happen in the next few weeks. Um, it would be silly for me to think that we're going to have a, a, a local election the way that we're supposed to have it focused on our district. That's the way that I want to keep it. Um, you know, I have been so stringent with my uh, fiscal policy that we signed the ECU pledge. For me, it's important that all the dollars that we're getting are from people, uh, not from corporate PACs. So explain ECU. What you're so and Citizens United is an organization that is based on um, the HR1 bill. It's like the cornerstone. It's trying to make sure that the Citizens United uh, mm -hmm. designation that made corporations people yes. is no longer uh, in place. So if you are in favor of changing that, you will not take any money from corporations because they are not the people that are going to elect mm -hmm. you. And that's been one of my pledges because I firmly believe that the people that are going to control my message are the people that are electing me, not corporations and their interest. How's fundraising going? I mean, you're getting up, you're getting up <laughs> part of the, the political marketplace there. Uh, fundraising is going rather well. Um, we have out fundraised our opponent so far five to one. We don't know what the third quarter is going to look like. Um, and when we had Uh, the opponents that were before the primary when the incumbent was still in the picture, we had out fundraised both of them. I think it was two or three to one. So you'll have the capacity to go up on TV during the general election. And That's what we're working towards. Yeah. So, you know, because of COVID, it's a little difficult sometimes to get out there and mingle with voters at in the normal way. Well, it depends on what you believe. If you actually believe in the science and you believe that COVID is a serious issue and you care enough about the people that you're trying to get elected by that you want to protect them, then you absolutely take precautions. If you don't care about the virus and you don't think it's that chronic, then you just go door knocking. Yeah. And we've seen that <clears throat> interesting question here. I think there's a, I've seen the distinction between Republicans and Democrats in the Kansas Capitol building, go to a committee meeting. All the Democrats during the meeting will have a mask on very few of the Republicans. And I wonder about that, how that works on the street, like going door to door. Uh, could a Republican candidate who doesn't worry about masks or otherwise interacting with people, could they actually have a political advantage? over a Democrat, the generic Democrat, who thinks uh, staying at home might be the safest thing for everybody? You know, here's, here is the, the premise of that question poses the, uh, poses the problem itself. It's sad that a medical issue has become politicized. Yeah. Isn't that sad? You know, we're dealing with a virus. I don't think that if we are able to do a, a, a mega microscope and talk to the virus, it's going to tell us if it's a Republican or a Democratic virus, right? It's a virus. 
It's a virus. It doesn't have a brain. It's probably a prion. We have no, it's not a prion because it does have a structure, but, but it's a small virus. And somehow, some way, our country is so divided right now that we've made it a political issue. And I think that it's a shame and it talks to the things that we have to break through. I think it's time for us to stop talking about parties and stop talking about the reality of the science and start talking about the issues. And the fact that we have a group of individuals that are just ignoring the fact that there is something that has killed the equivalent of this county is concerning. What do we think about revelations that uh, attributed to the comments attributed to the president of the United States that he intentionally uh, downplayed the severity of COVID-19. What do we think about that? So the first thing that I'll say is that I'm, I'm happy that he's finally saying that it's a grave thing. And I'm hoping, I'm truly hoping that the individuals that have been downplaying this virus are finally going to start backing the science because now their leader is saying that it's a problem. So aside from the fact that I, as a, as a citizen, feel like it has been extremely challenging as a mayor to have to tell my residents, this is a problem, let's be careful, and having to debate the president because people are saying, no, the president is saying it's not. It has been horrific. Yeah, the messaging on what basic precautions to take has been sort of a quagmire. It has. Yeah. And that is kind of the politicalization of it, I think. So interesting. All right. Um, hmm. So otherwise, in terms of COVID, as a member of Congress, you would vote on bills related to the issue. Uh, what would be your ask if you were sitting in, in the U.S. House chamber and wanted to draft a bill? What, what significant provisions of a, the next COVID bill would you advocate for? So the first thing that I would ensure is the U.S. Conference of Mayors, uh, organization that I respect very much and I'm a part of the advisory board, we've been advocating since the inception of the first package that came out for dollars to come directly to municipalities. And it was heartbreaking that in the state of Kansas, there is no city over 350,000 people and our senators voted voted for dollars to only go to cities above 350,000 people to start getting direct funding. And I do understand that dollars that come to the state and our governor has done an amazing job trying to spread that. But guess what? The challenges that we are facing are local challenges. It's the mayors, the county commissioners, the health departments that are dealing with these issues that are facing the challenges. We're the ones that get the calls from the small businesses. So I think that the first thing that has to be taken into account is working with an organization where there is the League of, of Municipalities at the national level, uh, or if it's the U.S. Conference of Mayors, making sure that at the local level, we have a true understanding of what is happening with those local budgets. What is happening? Because you know what's happening at the national level? A lot of people have been focusing so much on the virus that they've pretty much halted their regular operations. Their budgets are being impacted. In the city of Topeka, we had a significant budget impact that we're trying to come up with and still provide services and still try to figure out how we support our economy. Small businesses that we had to create the host program. I am so proud that the partnership came up with that program and that we were able to help small businesses. But the core individuals that need the support are not getting what they need. So my first thing would be making sure that we create allocations that go directly to municipalities based on what they are losing because of this pandemic. 
So that would be the first thing. And then the second thing would be making sure that we work with the states to understand what the gap is for unemployment so that we could partner with the state. And the other thing is making sure that we work with small businesses and make sure that we are taking care of them. One of the biggest failures that we had is the fact that a sole proprietor was having a really hard time trying to get support. Um, And I think that the governor was the one that came up with the PUA program to make sure that that was not a gap in our state anymore. But these are things that are missed when you don't work with your local government. So I know the state's two largest population counties, Johnson and Sedgwick, received money directly from the federal government. They did because of the and size. Then, mm-hmm. And then in terms of the other 103 counties, the money was funneled through the state. Do we think not enough money uh, came to Shawnee County came and then filtered down to Topeka so you could help Topeka small businesses? Is it just, or is the process just still percolating along very slowly? The process is percolating slowly. Okay, so we're six months in, and there's there's businesses here in in Topeka that could desperately use assistance, Absolutely. but don't have it. Correct. So, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think twenty uh, percent of Topeka businesses are going to go under? And... That is my fear, and I hope it's not the case. Mm-hmm. Well. I... <laughs> You know, nine months, 10 months, 12 months later could be too late. I know, which is why we've been advocating at the federal level to figure out a package that can pass. Mm -hmm. I know that there were some issues with the HEROES Act. I know that it was not 100% a bipartisan effort, but at least out of all of the things that I don't know that was happening there, the one thing that I do know is that the city of Topeka would have received close to $90 million in support. Can we talk about Black Lives Matter and some of the protests? And, and what I'm, what I, you, you have an interesting position because you're a mayor of a decent-sized city. So how do you balance the, the views of Black Lives Matter, for example, and, and uh, their allies, with uh, law enforcement? You know, you you you've been upfront and close with both of those mm-hmm. coalitions. Uh, of people that support law enforcement at every turn and, and otherwise. So so how do you evaluate all of this? So I think that this is part of the crisis that we have in our country, that it's an all or nothing. You're either with me or you're against me. And I think that that has to stop. I love my police department. We have heroes that work there. But for us to say with a straight face that there is no room for improvement is crazy. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And for us to say, and I think that somebody asked me that I really respect, they said, Michelle, what do you mean when you say Black Lives Matter? And the best analogy that I can say is, absolutely, I understand your life, Tim, it matters. It matters. And you are, you know, a a Caucasian male. It matters greatly. You know, if something were to happen to you, I I I would be impacted. Guess what? Your life right now is not on fire. Black communities across the nation are struggling. We are seeing on a regular basis how black bodies are being mutilated by police officers across the country. And when we say black lives matter, it means that this is the house that's on fire in a neighborhood. And I'm not going to say, well, all of the houses matter. So I'm just going to, you know, look at all the houses and throw water at all the houses equally because all of the houses are here in this neighborhood. No, I am going to take care of the house that is on fire right now. And I am going to acknowledge fire that house. How do we help? And that is what Black Lives Matters means to me. Our country is a beautiful country. We have a country that was founded on these beautiful ideals. When we say our Pledge of Allegiance, we say a Pledge of Allegiance that talks about liberty and justice for all. 
And I typically, if you ever hear me in the council meetings, you say, you hear me say all with a big infatuation. And you know why I do it? I do it because when we built our country, there were some things that we forgot. Women have only had a hundred years to vote. Black individuals like my great-great-great-grandmother that was brought on a boat to be a slave didn't have a choice and she wasn't counted. A few years ago, people could not go to the same school. And if we cannot talk with our, about our country with the same love that we have for it, for the ideals that it represents, and at the same time recognize that there were wrongs that were being made, that our economy was built on the backs of individuals of color, that worked to create the systems that we have, but were excluded of those systems. We have a problem. And saying that doesn't mean that I love my country any less. It means that I love it with the full understanding of the places where we must improve. When I think about the whole law enforcement justice system, I think the problems are so profound that it's hard for people to wrap their arms around. And we, we perhaps need to take bite sizes out of it. Let's take one example. In law enforcement, police work, I, you know, I don't pretend to have walked in the shoes of an officer in a volatile situation, but it has always puzzled me why officers shoot to kill at every turn. So when they're, when they're encountered, when their guns are drawn, you know, it's, I know it's not like the movies where you wound a guy in the leg and everybody, it all works out, uh, but I'm just thinking... Better tasers, uh, different non-lethal disabling devices. I don't know. But when you put 10 9-millimeter rounds into somebody, you have an expectation they'll never get up. So I, I see that as that is profoundly troubling. I'll even make it a little bit deeper than that, Tim. I think that the things that we don't often talk about is the different experiences because of implicit biases that we have within us that we don't understand, okay? When you go into a neighborhood that is a little bit more impoverished, and typically when you're trying to find somebody that has done a wrong, a lot of times those individuals happen to, you know, not always, many times, those individuals happen to live in a low-income neighborhood, which automatically gives you pause, which heightens your emotions because you don't know what you're going to encounter. You don't feel safe. How do you think that impacts an officer's mind? Especially when most of those neighborhoods happen to be of color. Your experience is not the same of the experience of so many other people that live right here in this community. There's things that are happening at deeper levels that we don't understand and maybe we don't want to acknowledge because the, the trick of implicit bias understanding is that I'm not challenging your notions. I am challenging everything that you have been taught by generations and generations and generations. So when I call a bias on you, I'm not challenging you. I'm challenging your parents, your grandparents, and everything that you were taught to be true. So imagine the different sorts of experiences that our black brothers and sisters are having compared to the experiences that you may have had with law enforcement. They're yeah. very different experiences. My general notion is that I'm a hell of a lot safer. Correct. But your first experience was never that your dad was taken away right in front of you. Your first experience was not that your parent was arrested. Whether you did it right or wrong, that was never your first experience with law enforcement. We have to acknowledge that for many of our children, the experiences are so different. 
And this is where we must have a conversation. I keep telling people, because I get criticism. It's like, oh, no, look, you're a minority and you're not advocating hard enough. And I look at people and I say, you need to understand, Lincoln in 1868 signed the Emancipation Proclamation. If it would have been as easy as us changing a policy, we wouldn't be having these conversations right now. The thing that we have to do is work with people to make sure that we are able to start changing hearts and people having an understanding of what's happening even right next door to us. So that then as we all are understanding that these things are happening, then we start working together towards solutions. We need to work on education and changing hearts. And sometimes those lessons are really hard, especially when our brains are automatically programmed not to take in new information that, that is difficult for us to absorb. But I think that that is the work of leaders. The work of leaders is to help bring conversations to the table that help people understand so that as hearts change, we can start changing policies and making true change because anything else is a Band-Aid. Another big problem, uh, public policy problem that Congress would deal with is immigration. Do you mind explaining a bit about your immigration story? You know, I, I'm not an immigrant. I was born in New York. Your family. I know. I mean your family. <laughs> My grandpa so was an immigrant from yeah. Italy. And uh, yeah. like I shared with you, I'll, I'll never forget uh, being, ah, this is emotional for me. Um, so, you know, in, in, in our family, my family never really talked about their background and you know it just you know everybody I I found out that we lived in the projects when I was a lot older because I was asking questions you know my family was in 50 Paladino on 122nd Street in New York uh, my grandmother ended up moving to Puerto Rico with my grandpa after she married my grandpa um, because my uncle one of my uncles was getting in trouble and um, they just wanted to get out um, and then they, they started, you know, working really hard and they had a pretty decent life. We never knew that we were poor. I think that that's the story with many people who are. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when my grandma, who for me was like my mom, um, was, sorry, was in her hospital bed um, right before she died, uh, I remember sitting down with her and asking her, and I was asking, Mama, tell me about your mom. Tell me about, you know, what, what, what's part of our background. And she, uh, she was telling me that I don't remember how many levels of grandmothers it was for her. But her, her family, her last name was Jibojo. And um, apparently she was brought in from Africa as a slave to Puerto Rico. Um, She was prostituted. So my grandmother had like family members from, you know, all over. And um, and she started telling me this story. And I'm thinking, oh, man, it must be the meds that she's under. (laughs) That she's sharing with you. Yeah, that she's Uh like giving me all of this narrative of our family. And I'm thinking, could this be right? Could this be right? Um, So... So here is my grandmother that grows up in Puerto Rico and then goes to New York, meets her first husband, has her kids and marries this Italian. And then they end up moving over here. So I grew up in this very diverse, um, very mixed family, uh, Mm -hmm. speaking three languages and not speaking any of them correctly, by the way. (laughs) Um, But but I think that you know, it's kind of interesting to, to kind of look back on your roots. As a funny story, I did my 23andMe and I started bawling when I got the results because um, part of my lineage is from West Africa and it was from my grandmother's side. Mm-hmm. So she was right. Yeah. Um, 
God, those sorry. are really interesting things to discover. Oh God, yeah, it was it was weird. Sometimes um, they don't line up with the family uh, no. discussion. No, at all. And this yeah. is stuff that we don't talk about in our family. So, so for me, immigration has a very different flavor. I think that look, it, it, it drives me insane when I hear people talk about the border because it's it's already racialized, right? Last I checked, there's two borders to this country. But why is it that we talk about the wall and the border in just one place? Um, If we want to talk about securing our borders, we have to talk about both of our borders and how we are going to make sure that we, we, we figure out a way of ensuring the safety of our country. In the same breath, this country was built on a mixture of people that came from everywhere. The only people who are not immigrants are the Native Americans. And we don't even talk about the Native American community. We don't. So everybody is an immigrant. I'm not saying just open up the borders and let everybody come in, but here's the deal. If we are having gaps in our employment, like for example, I spoke with a farmer in Lawrence that was telling me, I am needing to do an agricultural visa because nobody wants to do this job. And guess who is great at this job? It's people from other countries, people from Mexico that wanna come in here and get to work. So if we have need for work, why are we not developing better worker programs so that families don't have to do this treacherous stretch? And they, they have this trek in which they come, they leave their families behind and half of them die and right now as a country that has a statue of liberty that says bring me your tired right we are having families being separated with children dying in one of our borders i I don't understand this when we have needs for workers so let's figure it would seem unnecessary and what the united states has needed for a long time is a very robust guest worker program yes so that people don't have to uh, engage in criminal conduct correct to come back and forth they don't have to it, it becomes so expensive they don't go back for a couple of years and those years are missed in terms of raising their kids it's not family friendly that's for sure absolutely and so if we had a guest worker program people could go back and forth before we wrap things up i wanted to ask you about uh as you well know the the democrats nominated four women Yes. To run in the four congressional districts, they nominated a five woman, with Senator Bollier. They nominated a woman to run in the uh, Senate race. So uh, that's not normal for Kansas. I think that's unprecedented. So what's what's the vibe with that? You know, I think that people were looking at the character of the individuals, and I think it's a beautiful day when people don't care whether you're a woman or a man, and um, and they're looking at what you're talking about. I think that the one thing that I know as a common thread with all of us ladies is that we're much less concerned about the party, we're more concerned about the people. We're concerned about the issues that are taking you know a hold of our state. We, we understand all too well what it is. You know, you have Callie who's a teacher, and you know, when I mm-hmm. catch up with her, we're concerned about what is happening with our kiddos going back to school. I have a friend who's a teacher that got her will done before she went in um, because of the fears that are happening right now. Those are the things that we worry about. You have Laura that does trade, you know, and then she's been worried about how she is going to make sure that, you know, that that our farmers are not struggling. You have Barbara, who's a doctor that is concerned about health care. You know, you have Sharice, you know, who's concerned about, you know, veterans and, and all the other things that she's been working on. And in none of those conversations, I'm concerned about health care. I'm concerned about the economy and broadband and all these things. And guess what? There's no party in any of those issues. We're concerned about issues. We're concerned about people. And I think that when Kansas made the determination, it so happened to be in the Democratic Party for a majority, 
um, they did so because they were attracted to the message. They were attracted to the to the to the substance that was being talked about rather than the gender. And I hope to see it that way. I choose to see it that way because I tell you what, Tim, I'm tired of hearing the first of. Yeah, well, we won't have to do that anymore. It'll be second nature after this. Well, Mayor, thank you very much for joining us on the Kansas Reflector podcast. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You can find other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or at kansasreflector.com.